From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Professor Ruth May joins me to discuss the article she wrote for the Dallas Morning News entitled, How Putin's Oligarchs Funneled Millions into the GOP. And after that, we welcome back veteran journalist Ray Suarez to discuss what role the media, the fourth estate, should be in the era of Donald Trump and what has it become. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. As a weekly columnist, oftentimes when someone wishes to commend or criticize a column written more than a week prior, invariably I must ask, what was the column about? Because frankly, I don't remember. The point being, the shelf life of a column is usually no more than a week. But University of Dallas professor Ruth May has the unique honor by writing a piece so powerful and prescient that it originally ran in the Dallas Morning News in December 2017, but in light of recent events, ran again last week. How Putin's oligarchs funneled millions into the GOP is a must-read if one wishes to understand the intricacy of Russian money invested with the GOP. Now, before you dismiss this as a one-sided piece that ignores any democratic malfeasance, this is a well-reasoned piece that should raise concerns for anyone who believes in the ethos of American democracy. We are honored to have Professor May on The Public Morality. Professor Ruth May, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. Great to be with you. Mm -hmm. You have the distinction of writing a piece for the Daily Morning News in December of 2017 that was so prescient that the Dallas Morning News decided to run it again last week. Talk about that, if you would. Well, um, you know, the piece that I did for the news in December really came uh, out of a basis of 25 years of my academic research on Russia. I had written an article for them in August, but that article only focused on one oligarch's donations, political donations. And so um, I believe it was around mid-November they reached out to me again and asked me if I could write something that would help provide a broader context for how uh, all the characters unfolding in this Russia drama are connected. And, uh, you know, uh, every professor, when they're preparing a lecture, depends heavily on visuals. And I convinced them that for the average American to, to really understand what's going on, we needed to create a picture. And so I worked very closely with uh, their graphics artist, Michael Hogue, in uh, creating 
the, uh, the, the very large complex chart that went into the print edition, and then he also did um, an interactive chart with rollover uh, little bubbles online that would explain how each person fit into this complex web. And I, I would just say for those who do uh, uh, go to the uh, Dallas Morning News website, I highly recommend that you click on those bubbles so that you would see just the intrigue uh, that's, that's involved here and the complexity that I might add. So, so on that note, uh, Professor Bay, when you heard the recent allegations that uh, President Trump's personal attorney may have operated a pay-for-play slush fund, I'm assuming based that this piece was originally penned in 2017, December, um, you really weren't that surprised? No, not at all. Uh, I think the slush fund that Cohen uh, set up, and then, of course, we know at least uh, one person he paid was the adult film actress that uh, President Trump had the uh, illicit affair with. I think it's consistent, really, with how President Trump has conducted his businesses uh, over the years and uh, the, the character of the people that he surrounds himself with. So, no, I was not surprised at all. So I'm also uh, further assuming that uh, I think I think it was President Trump's I believe it was his first press conference when he when he really uh, forcefully said that Russia was a ruse. Uh, you might see that slightly different as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not a ruse. Uh, and honestly, I wish it were a ruse. But uh, it is at its core uh, an egregious attack on our country that uh, really demanded a strong retaliatory response. And, you know, because Republican leadership, uh, having control now of both houses and the executive branch, uh, because they've always taken a, a very hard line on Soviet or Russian aggression, I fully expected uh, them to come out swinging and, and right away. But Nothing happened, and uh, I was perplexed about that. There was no sharp condemnation from the top congressional leadership, no hard pushback for an aggressive investigation by the White House, and I just I could not understand why. Now, so that, that really pushed me then to, to do the, the research that is behind what I've written uh, primarily for the Dallas Morning News. But, but as you, you mentioned earlier, and I, I want to I touch back on that, I mean, this has been an area of study for you for some time, has it, has it not? That's correct, yes. Yes. Um, I had my first career in the 80s right out of uh, my undergraduate studies in the financial industry. I was a stockbroker for um, a small private firm, and, and when it was bought out in 89 by a, a large uh, national brokerage, I decided that was a time for me to break away and, and do something I had always wanted to do, which was pursue my doctorate and go into academia. And, you know, uh, fate uh, or providence, whatever you want to call it, works in mysterious ways. And the Soviet Union collapsed the week before I started my doctoral program. And I had, um, I had always had a strong interest in that part of the world because as an undergrad, 
I had the opportunity to travel abroad and visit Berlin when the wall was still there. And that was a real transformative experience for me. And I just somehow knew from that point on in my life that whatever I was meant to be or do, that it would have something to do with that part of the world and hopefully uh, helping people who had been trapped behind the Iron Curtain reconnect with the global community. So in 1991, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed and I was about to to start my PhD, I just felt like the planets were lining up for me. And so I've really dedicated myself the last 25 years to um, kind of a laser focus on Russia, its difficulties in transitioning to a market economy, the, the mindset, the uh, corrupt business environment. And then, of course, um, in recent years, more toward uh, Vladimir Putin himself and his inner circle, who've really done a 180-degree turn and uh, set Russia back on course for being uh, a true authoritarian state. Well, well, if Khrushchev entered, uh, ushered in the de-Stalinization period, could, could, one could make the argument that Putin uh, is ushering in a re-Stalination period. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what he has done to uh, obliterate the independent media uh, and uh, put a, a, a tight grip on civil liberties, the uh, electoral process in his country is no longer legitimate, and it was for the most part in the 1990s. Um, so uh, it's really a shame what he's done, and... Um, his only strength now really comes from instilling fear and paranoia uh, in his citizens, you know, which ironically was how the Soviets controlled uh, an entire, uh, almost a half a hemisphere uh, during the Cold War period, and they did it by using uh, propaganda, uh, or what we now call uh, in the millennial age fake news. Uh, but it's not anything new, and the Russians are absolute masters at it. Now, you, you write in your piece, quote, Buried in the campaign finance reports available to the public are some troubling connections between a group of wealthy donors, uh, a group of wealthy donors with ties to Russia, and their political contributions to Donald Trump and a number of top Republican leaders. Now, my question, your piece actually expands where the majority of the, the media coverage has been on this issue thus far. Yes, I think so. Um, I think my piece really shows the poorest nature of our campaign financing system. In fact, I called it a threat to uh, our national security uh, in my article because it's really a, become a sieve, and uh, it's an opportunity for bad actors, both uh, domestic and foreign, to funnel money into uh, political campaigns. And, uh, you know, I, I realized that when news broke in the summer of 2016 about the Russians' hack uh, into the DNC, and thereafter, you know, with the troll farm posing as Americans and um, 
really uh, directing people's attention to more, more divisiveness on social media. The focus has been on uh, cyber uh, attacks and, and things revolving around the Internet. But uh, I said in the article, we really have holes in our firewall, and they're not just holes uh, in the Internet. Uh, this really goes beyond Trump. And uh, that's why I, after digging through uh, the records of the Federal Election Commission, felt like it was important to show uh, just how far Russia's influence may have extended uh, in, in, to other politicians. Now, now I can imagine a, a number of people listening to this uh, and, and read your piece, in, in addition, might reach the conclusion that you were being hyperpartisan. But the piece that you wrote was the result of digging into those campaign finance pieces, was it, was it, was it not? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, people have uh, emailed me with questions about that. And they said, well, you know, what about the Democrats? What about uh, Hillary Clinton? And my response is, uh, I looked, uh, and I looked very diligently. And, you know, they just weren't there. Uh, Clinton uh, did not take donations from uh, any of these oligarchs that I focused on. Uh, one of them, in particular, Lynn Blavatnik, uh, I went back 10 years, and really until the uh, presidential election season, his donations were pretty bipartisan in nature. Uh, but, you know, he never gave more than two, $300,000 in a season, which is not much for a billionaire. And then for there to be this sudden shift, hard right, into the millions uh, of donations just struck me as as strange and something that uh, merits scrutiny. Now, the other thing that struck me about that quote that I that I read earlier was th these uh, four words uh, available to the public, so that much of the information. Uh, about this issue, about this complex issue, I guess I'm wondering, is it easier just to keep it hidden in plain sight? Because you, this is what you did was all available information. We don't have to wonder, you know, what your source is. Right. Yeah, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a professional journalist uh, or have a history of being an investigator, but I am a pretty uh, dogged academic researcher, and the work I have done over the years with different databases and research topics tends to be very tedious and slow and uh, takes patience and someone to just be careful as they comb through records. Uh, I think um, the reason this maybe has escaped attention or, or you know, a lot of, uh, of media coverage is that professional journalists and I have the utmost respect uh, for the free press in our country. I think journalists who are getting paid to publish on a very fast turnaround uh, have frankly just been inundated with salacious comments, behaviors, you know, the daily deluge of tweets uh, coming from the president. And 
have just simply been overwhelmed and distracted. They, 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 we don't have enough um, professional, uh, you know, uh, free press warriors to get to everything. And, and in fact, I told a friend recently, I almost feel like I'm part of the um, free press reserve, uh, like the National Guard, who has just had to be called up to active duty uh, in, in this period of history because uh, people who are paid to do this day in, day out for the you know, big, respected media outlets are, are overwhelmed. They just can't get to it. There's not enough manpower or, or woman power, I should say. Well, if you're just joining me, I'm speaking with University of Dallas professor Ruth May uh, about a piece she wrote for the Dallas Morning News in December that was reprinted last week in light of developments surrounding President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen. So, Professor May, you know, the, the, the title of your piece, How Putin's Oligarchs Funneled Millions into the GOP Campaign, you know, sounds to be the height of impropriety. Is it? Uh, well, uh, Byron, I think in the context of Russia attacking our election, uh, yes, uh, technically it's not illegal, but I do think it's the height uh, of impropriety. Ex ex was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Professor May. Explain when you said technically it's not illegal, because that may have just caught somebody off guard, because they, they have Russia elections and they think it's illegal. Explain what you mean by technically it's not. Uh -huh. Well, each of these oligarchs that are closely connected two uh, major companies in Russia. They own them with uh, Russian citizen oligarchs who are very close to Vladimir Putin. Uh, they, they have American citizenship. So while they're earning their billions in Russia and in Russian rubles, because they have American citizenship, uh, you know, any American can give to uh, a political campaign. The, the issue is that the, uh, the people who run these PACs, uh, these campaign organizations, don't have to take the money. And I think that's the issue here. Um, I wrote about um, Alexander Shostorovich, who back in 2000, he tried to make a $250,000 donation to the Republican National Committee on behalf of the George Bush presidential campaign. And uh, they were tipped off by the Clinton administration that, you know, hey, this guy has ties to the Russian government. And they just said, well, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, we don't want your money. And they sent the check back. Uh, the Republicans in the 2015-2016 season did not do that. And um, I lay the weight of responsibility, particularly at uh, the feet of Mitch McConnell, um, the leader, the Senate leader of the Republican Party, because he knew full well in the summer and fall of 2016 that our election was under attack by Russians. Uh, he was pressured uh, by the Obama administration to issue a bipartisan statement 
condemning Russia. He refused to do that. He said, no, I'm not going to sign it unless it's watered down. And, um, you know, I just think at a minimum, it was careless indifference on behalf of these leaders and, and the staff that run these uh, PACs. Um, it certainly, it was terribly poor judgment to, to take this money it, that can be traced back to uh, businesses so closely associated with the Kremlin. Now, but you also raise uh, the name in your 2017 piece of uh, Victor uh, Vesselberg. And for those who are unfamiliar, uh, he is one of the wealthiest individuals in Russia and is linked to allegations funding Cohen's business. Now, his contributions, if the reports are accurate, would be uh, illegal according to campaign finance law. Is that correct? That's correct. Vexelberg himself uh, cannot legally contribute. Um, and that is not the reporting here. And, and this is where I think details are, are very important to understand. The, uh, the payment to Michael Cohen, which we know uh, was over a period from January to August of 2017, and totaled $500,000. That came from a subsidiary company here in the United States of Vexelberg's large conglomerate in Russia called the Renova Group. It was actually Vexelberg's cousin, uh, Andrew Intrader, who is an American. He's CEO of uh, Vexelberg's private equity arm here that's under scrutiny now called Columbus Nova. And Columbus Nova is a company that paid Cohen, and Andrew Intrader was the individual, the American, who made the uh, $250,000 donation to Trump's inaugural fund. And, in fact, he's made two other donations uh, in uh, 2017, both in June, he gave an additional 35000 to the Trump Victory Fund and 29600 to the Republican National Committee. Him, that's Andrew Intrader himself. So that is not illegal. Now, the big question is, uh, who really directed those contributions? Was that just Intrader deciding... Suddenly, uh, after a 10-year history of less than $10,000 total in political contributions, that he suddenly wanted to be giving six-figure gifts uh, to the Trump administration? Or was it somehow um, ordered or coordinated uh, with his cousin Victor back in Russia and perhaps... Uh, Vexelberg's ties to the Russian government. And, and that we don't know. But I'm sure Robert Mueller is going to figure it out. Now, you also portray uh, a very elaborate web. You touched on this earlier, but I'd like to have you expand on it. That the web that you portray, if that is accurate, I mean, all of it, uh, Special Counsel Mueller notwithstanding, um, is barely scratching the surface 
of, of, of what's really of what's really possible and what's really known. Yes, it is. And um, I know it's, it's very difficult to keep track of all the characters. And uh, I believe, again, that's why uh, a chart is so important. I've had so many people uh, text me and email me and say, you know, we just print my, I printed this chart and pinned it to my desktop or my bulletin board. And honestly, when I uh, was conceptualizing how to lay this out, one of my goals would be was that uh, going forward, it could serve as sort of a reference tool for people who um, are not like me. You know, they don't have decades of, of watching these characters and companies. But uh, I think you're right uh, in terms of scratching the surface. And um, I feel like this is, this is a marathon, and we're only about halfway through. And, and honestly, that's one of the things that troubles me is I feel like um, as a public, we're beginning to experience a sort of national fatigue, uh, but there's a long way to go. And uh, we've, we've really got to pull together, reach deep, uh, you know, just like a marathon runner does, reach deep for the, the courage and fortitude to see this out. And we've, we've got to back up uh, these Americans in law enforcement uh, and in the Justice Department who are carrying out this investigation because it has really serious long-term implications for the legitimacy of our democracy. Uh, I also took the liberty uh, to read some of the comments, some of the feedback that you received from the piece. Mm -hmm. And what I found very interesting uh, which and you just sort of touched on it, which is increasingly becoming the hallmark uh, of our public discourse, is to refute the argument put forth, not because your argument is invalid, but to suggest, well, what about these other people? Why aren't you talking about them as if that somehow refutes the argument you put forth? And I just wonder, you know, I guess part of me wants to say, to you, Professor May, welcome to my world. But also, I, I want I want to know how, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, I tell people, look, uh, I am a capable, qualified researcher on Russia, and uh, I was driven by a question of why wasn't. Uh, why were we not seeing uh, a more vociferous response from Republican leadership? And I started searching uh, the data. And, you know, I, I saw suspicious donations, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to uh, some of the top GOP leaders that, frankly, just, it just surprised me that in the context uh, of the, the news and the the confirmation by our intelligence services that this this attack really happened and it continues uh, that that they would take this money. It just uh, I just couldn't make make sense of it. It just it just seemed highly uh, inappropriate. Um, and again, I did look to see if. Uh, any of these characters had made uh, donations to Hillary Clinton. 
Um, and I'm confident that any charges against her have been thoroughly investigated by the FBI and, and any other appropriate law enforcement. But, you know, that's not my job. That's not my expertise. Now, now, you know, don't be mistaken. Clinton is definitely at the center of this whole Russia drama, but not in the way uh, that, that some might want to uh, think. Uh, I mean, she's definitely not a colluder with Russia. She is the, the arch nemesis of Vladimir Putin. And I believe really what he wanted to do more than help Donald Trump be elected was he wanted to defeat Hillary Clinton because he knew that if she ended up in the Oval Office, that he would be uh, the target uh, of her um, investigation. She would uncover everything that had happened uh, and essentially uh, expose him for the emperor with no clothes that he is. So, truly, Vladimir Putin is afraid of Hillary Clinton, and he despises her, and that is, I believe, we will see in hindsight, uh, what was the catalyst for all these efforts that began in Russia. Uh, it was just, uh, a stroke of luck for him that Trump won the Republican nominee, uh, sorry, Republican nomination, because then he had uh, an opportunity then to begin to uh, try to reach in and affect the election, because uh, all he's ever wanted was to have someone that he could persuade to lift the U.S. Uh, economic sanctions against, against Russia. And with with uh, Trump, I think he found uh, that 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 might be a possibility. The name of the piece, How Putin's Oligarch Funneled Money into the GOP, written by my guest, Professor Ruth May uh, for the Dallas Morning News. It is, in my view, an informative must read. Uh, Professor May, I want to thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. That was Professor Ruth May. Stay tuned as I speak with veteran journalist Ray Suarez about the role of journalism in the era of Donald Trump. Welcome back. Regardless of how one feels, there is no doubting that Donald Trump has altered the office of President of the United States. Time will tell if it is a permanent change. But what is clear, he has thrown the fourth estate journalism off its game. How should journalists cover the 45th president? Should it react to every outlandish tweet or temper its coverage so that it informs the public so that they are the final arbitrators of what's important. And what are the barriers that might get in the way of making a judicious choice to the aforementioned questions? To answer these and other questions, we welcome back veteran journalist Ray Suarez. <laughs> 
Ray Suarez, welcome back to The Public Morality. Great to talk to you, Byron. Mm -hmm. Now, one could argue on balance that it was uh, a pretty good week for President Donald Trump last week. He began the week with uh, positive economic news, pulled the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal, which was a campaign promise. I know people feel differently, but it was a campaign promise. He greeted three men that were held hostage in North Korea, released uh, as a measure of good faith uh, for his upcoming uh, summit with Kim, uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un. But somewhere in the middle of that week, there were allegations of his personal attorney involved in a slush fund, which may have been the source of the payment for Stormy Daniels and also a play for a pay-for-play scheme. So with all of that, Ray, do we just shrug our shoulders and say, welcome to another week in the Donald Trump? How do we cover that as journalists? Well, I, I think you do exactly what you just did. You tick off the uh, long litany of developments and then leave it for the public to figure out uh, on balance what kind of week it was. I mean, you know, this is not the first and nor will it be the last week that Donald Trump's personal problems and his possible legal problems overshadow things that might be very popular uh, in his duties as president. So, you know, this is just, as you suggest, another week in Trump land. But it's interesting that... Um, he just pushes on ahead and doesn't seem to do that calculus in the same way that conventional politicians do. I mean, a press shop at a conventional presidency would be pulling what's that, whatever left is left of his hair out at this point, uh, trying to help the president get out of his own way and put together, uh, put together some momentum. Uh, it's a very, it, this is a very tough presidency to cover, a very tough presidency to explain to 327 million citizens, and I, I suspect it'll remain that way. Well, if, if the reports are accurate, and I have no reason to suggest they're not, uh, how does, uh, put us, in, if you could, uh, in the position of the White House press corps, it, when they don't have a lot of trust uh, with the uh, with uh, Sarah Sand uh, uh, Huckabee Sanders, how do they do their job, or or how do they maneuver in the ways you just suggested they should? Well, I I think for every individual correspondent or team that covers the White House, there's an inside game and an outside game. You report the public statements of the president and his administration while continuing to develop your own sources uh, that are less than public. And you uh, try to report both sets of events because both are in the realm of reality. Uh, so, yes, it's true that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo came back with three men who had been held by the North Koreans. And it's also probably just as true that a member of the president's team uh, dismissed the importance of John McCain opposing Gina Haspel's nomination to be the CIA chief because he's dying anyway. Both things are true. Both things are developed using different parts of the reporter's toolkit. Uh, you have to 
report the public activities and public statements of the White House. And at the same time, you develop sources within that White House uh, to try to give you a fuller picture of the totality of what's going on. That part hasn't changed. That's been true since there's been a White House press corps. But it is um, unusual territory uh, to have a White House as leaky as this one. Um, in other eras, we wouldn't have known about that Trump aide speculating on John McCain's impending death. We just wouldn't have heard about it. Uh, and so you saw uh, Sarah Sanders' own frustration about the leaks at her uh, at an earlier briefing. I mean, she she overlooked the uh, crudity of the uh, the sentiment being expressed, and uh, and aimed her fire at the leakiness of the White House, that we even know that that thing was being said. Yeah, that, that seems to be a, um, a, a, a ready talking point for those um, who want to defend the president. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I guess I also wonder, Ray, since we're having this conversation, about the temptation of the media to be sort of caught into that vortex. And, and I'll just give you this example. I'm listening to NPR, as I tend to do when I'm not on the air, um, and they led with uh, President Trump uh, tearing up the Iran nuclear deal. They led with that at the top of the hour. The second news story was Melania Trump, whether or not she plagiarized Michelle Obama in her, in her new um, uh, Be Better campaign. Two stories down was the president calling for cuts in the CHIP program. In, in my warped sense of things, Ray, I kind of think the CHIP program and cuts in that are more important than whether the First Lady plagiarized the previous First Lady. You got it. And I think the Washington press corps is being distracted by the consistent novelty of Trump world, the daily gushing cornucopia of bizarre marginal stories, and not paying enough attention to things like the proposed cuts, not only to CHIP, but to SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Program that helps millions of American families uh, put, put a balanced diet on the table. Uh, a lot of different programs that are facing either severe cutbacks or changes in the calculation of eligibility that will have the effect of taking people off the program, including many people in many distressed parts of the country who voted for Donald Trump. Whether Melania's press team lifted something directly from uh, Michelle Obama, that's trivial. It really is trivial. Um, whether Kanye West likes Donald Trump, that's trivial. It's, it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting maybe in, in some sort of scorecard kind of way. Should it have been as big a feature of our reporting over the last two weeks? Who cares? Who cares who Kanye West thinks uh, is a good president or a bad president? Uh, it not only it's not only a question of whether an individual news consumer cares, but the consequence of it. Whether Kanye West likes Donald Trump or not, um, I think over the long haul it's fair to conclude that it will be inconsequential. That will not be what tells the story of the Trump presidency. 
but there is a temptation because of this this tremendous gusher of bizarre stories that come out of Trump world to keep reporting on those things. And so they do. Um, Ray, I'm wondering, is the speed that we uh, receive news and information uh, coupled with the seemingly methodical approach of, say, the special counsel, uh, does that create for a sort of a growing impatience that sort of legitimizes calls to hurry up and get this investigation over with? Absolutely. I, I think you're very much onto something because the news business has gradually and over time enhanced its focus on what's going to happen rather than on what is happening and what happened. You have a news business that is primed to talk about things that haven't happened yet. So naturally, they're wringing their hands and waiting. Why doesn't Mueller have a final report? Well, that's not in the nature of how prosecutors put together these cases. I mean, white-collar criminal cases sometimes take years to nail down before you finally get uh, an indictment before you finally get a charging document that lays out chapter and verse what the government suspects someone of doing. Uh, but the news business is now in the 24-hour world primed for impatience. It's a it's a cultural moment. It's a moment in the evolution of the news business, and it even infects. You know, I, I should. As a caveat, say that, you know, it's easy for me to say because I'm not in a newsroom right now. I'm, I'm teaching. But I will go back into a newsroom, and I'm, I'm sure I'll be subject to many of those same pressures and many of those same implications that are, that are pressing on the news business from a local newsroom somewhere in a mid-sized market uh, to the biggest national uh, broadcasters and uh, news sources. So... You know, the, the, the way the business thinks about what news is has been changed and uh, may be changed beyond, beyond being able to recapture that old moment of reporting on things that are happening and reporting on things that actually happened and talking less about what you can't possibly know. That is, what is going to happen? We're not, we shouldn't be gazing at crystal balls. We shouldn't be speculating about what's going to happen tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now. But the news business has, unfortunately, because it's partially because it's cheaper, partially because it's easier, partially because the public's appetite has been whetted for it. Uh, we talk a lot about the future, and that's really shouldn't be our game. Well, you know, I want to touch back on something in your last answer, because you alluded, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you alluded that your fear or concern, rather, that the genie is out of the bottle and, and um, not much chance of getting back in. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, think about um, a Fox news channel. Think about an MSNBC. Think about a CNN. Sending correspondents out with crews, having producers in the field, having editors back at the home base to put together and assemble reported pieces is very capital intense, it's very labor intense, it's very expensive. You have to sustain people on the road, you have to pay for their hotels and their meals, 
it is so much cheaper and so much easier and so much more seductive to just put three people on the set and talk about what's going to happen next week. Whether it's intellectually defensible and whether it's journalism is another conversation altogether. But boy, oh boy, as far as the business model goes, it's so much easier to fill up the day with people sitting at desks arguing with each other than it is to actually have reporters in real places talking to real people about real events. So uh, um, at the point that Ray Suarez goes back into a newsroom, short of Byron Williams demanding that Melania Trump and whether or not she plagiarized Michelle Obama be the second bullet, (laughs) uh, (laughs) short of that and, and watching Ray Suarez come unglued, short of that, if you were king for a day, where would you like to see the fourth estate be in terms of the way it covers not only this president, but presidents going forward? And, and what should our responsibility be? Uh, I would never be as categorical as to say, don't listen to what they say, watch what they do. But I think we could do with a little bit more of paying more attention to what they do and less attention to what they say and how they say it. Um, yeah, I mean, the president's tweets, are interesting. They are a reflection of his thinking. They are also a reflection of his intentions regarding policy. But they shouldn't play the outsized role that right now they play in covering the presidency. What the Trump team is doing, and, and you know, what the Obama team did and what the Bush team did, is of far more consequence than uh, what's being blurted out in 280 characters. Far more consequence. Is it 280? I thought it was 140. See, that shows you how much I know. <laughs> well, it, it, got, it got raised, which makes it a lot easier. It makes it a lot easier to write tweets, but also a mu- much less likely that they're going to be pithy and direct. See, and, 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 and right at the end, we realized the reason I had Ray Suarez on, to understand that, that Twitter had raised its limits. So, Ray Suarez, my friend, thank you so much, sir, for once again joining us on The Public Morality. Always good to talk to you. So long. That was Ray Suarez. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Politics is a cyclical enterprise. It is easy to forget this inconvenient fact when fervently debating the issue du jour. For those who may not be old enough to remember or lacking the curiosity to simply look on YouTube, it can be lost that the contemporary calls to wrap up the special counsel's investigation, touting the willingness to cooperate, and placing an arbitrary deadline to end the investigation sounds like a replay of the Watergate talking points. And those who suggest the latitude that special counsel Robert Mueller enjoys is much too wide, how quickly they forget that what ultimately led to the impeachment of Bill Clinton began with a land deal known as Whitewater and ended several years later with him lying under oath about sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. Depending on the political position you may hold may very well depend on how you feel about the current investigation of President Donald Trump. But the manner that the investigation has been conducted is consistent when such issues have risen in the past. 
to support what happened before, but appalled about current events is not only hypocritical, it is a path that will not lead to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.